so you've probably heard this first story if you've been around our church at all, but I'm going to tell it again. It's one of my best stories. I'm going to tell it a little quicker this time because I want to share two stories up front today. And, uh, and, and this story takes place, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, probably longer. Everything feels like a year ago to me. I've gotten to that age, but you know, somewhere around 15, 12 years ago, somewhere in there. Uh, and I was house-sitting for uh, my maternal grandparents, and they, they live in West Salem, and they have one of the sides of their house is pretty much all glass. And the first night I was there, uh, I, the dog, Coda, who was a good dog, woke me up barking, and, and so I go into their bathroom, and I look out, and there's a, there's a car parked at the top of the driveway, and it's like three in the morning. It's a really long driveway, kind of goes uphill, and this car's parked there, and it drives off right when I get to the window, like it can see me almost. So I'm a, I'm a little, you know, unnerved. I'm a little stressed out about this. The next night, the floodlights stop working outside of the house. I'm like, somebody cut the lights. Like, this is, this is exactly how you get murdered in a movie. Big glass house, the lights stop working, some guy knows when I get up in the middle of the night. This is, this is no good at all. Like, I, I, I don't, I, so I, I go to the garage, I find a golf club, I'm ready, you know, like, I'm not going down without a fight. And, and, and the third night, I'm, I'm house-sitting for them. I walk into the house, Coda greets me, and immediately glass shatters downstairs. And my heart goes like up, like out of my body, I think. I'm not sure what happens for a few moments. I, I'm like, somebody's in, the, somebody's in this house with me. That's, that's what I'm, I'm like, somebody is now in here with me. My golf club's in the bedroom, you know. Always take the golf club with you. What an idiot, you know. Like, and, and, and I'm going to die. This is how it ends. This is no good. And so I just go outside and I think, wait, I'm literally house-sitting should I like defend the home, you know? Like I saw Home Alone when I was a kid. Like this is not, I mean, and so I go in, I get the golf club, I get my phone, I get the dog. That's the number one thing I wanted to go back in for. Uh, and I go to a grocery store, call the police, please come back with me. And the story is, I wish I had a better ending. And I whooped the guy's butt, you know? Um, no, the police came back and, and a light fixture had fallen downstairs and it had shattered the light fixture. And, and I had accidentally shut the floodlights off uh, in the house and uh, making matters worse. Apparently, Coda barks every day at about 3.30 because that's when my grandpa used to get up before work. And so that's when Coda was used to walking. So it was just a series of coincidences. But I tell that story and I'll tell this next story to say, it's really scary when you feel unguarded, right? Like, like when the people outside have now come inside and, and you feel like there's no barrier, no protection. It's a really scary place to be. Uh, I felt that same type of thing early in Brennan and I's marriage. I, I went to uh, a seminary whose main campus was in San Francisco, and so I was down there a couple of times a year for my master's degree, working on my master's degree. And uh, one of the times Bryn went with me, and she stayed in the girls' dorms, and I stayed in the, uh, the men's dorms. And the last night there, we were going out to eat for her birthday dinner. And this is, this is one of the sad stories of our entire marriage. My wife will tell you this is probably the worst birthday she ever had. We're going to the Franciscan Crab Market, which if you're down by the bay, it's, it's incredible. It's a great place. Uh, and 
we, we'd done the whole old touristy thing, and then we're on Van Ness in San Francisco, and we're headed to my favorite parking spot for the wharf, and, and then a car runs a red light, and, and you know, if you know San Francisco, the lights are on the sides, you know what I mean, and it's kind of horrible because you're constantly like, is it red, is it green, and apparently this lady chose the wrong way, and, and she hit three of us, and, and we were not injured, but uh, to make a long story short, as we're standing out there in San Francisco traffic trying to figure everything out, our, our car did not seem drivable to us. Looking back on the whole thing, we should have just duct taped it, but instead, we got the tow truck driver to come, and we ended up being there a very long time. We definitely missed our reservation at the Franciscan Crab Market, and the tow truck driver comes, and by the time he gets to us, the place that my insurance had told us to take the car was closed. And we have no idea what to do. The car's hooked up to the tow truck. This guy seems nice. He's like, uh, I know a tow truck, or uh, I know a, a shop, a body shop. I'll call him up and maybe we can drop it off there. And, and that's as good as I can do for you. Thank you. That's great. So he does that. And now we're there and we have no idea what to do and it's by the way gay pride weekend and so we had a couple of connections in the san francisco area and pretty much the response when trying to talk to those people to come get us give us a ride whatever was like yeah right we're never going to come down there right now on gay pride weekend like there's no chance it's friday night you're on your own good luck don't die you know i mean it was kind of like that and so so Brent and i get dropped off at this this uh, this kind of shady, this kind of shady body shop, right? I mean, body shops are always shady. <laughs> like, I just feel like that's a shady thing. And he just drops us off. And, and, and we have everything in our car because we had driven there. And it had just been my birthday. And so I had, like, all my stuff was, like, from my birthday in my car. And we, like, get a bag. And we're shoving everything that we can possibly shove into this bag. And, and we go outside. I'm carrying, like, a wad of cash because we're on, you know, we're traveling. And, you know, back then it, it kind of felt weird about just having a debit card now I don't feel that anymore but you know that feeling that you used to have like I better carry cash and I'm so I'm carrying I think like four or five hundred dollars which at that time to me was infinity uh, and like and and now I have everything like I have my USB stick that had four gigabytes of RAM and cost eighty five dollars and uh, everything I own you know is is in this bag and I got it on and we go outside and I don't I don't know San Francisco I know I know San Francisco pretty well in the parts of San Francisco that I want to see, but I don't know the rest of San Francisco very well. And, and it's clear as soon as we walk outside that we are not on the wharf anymore. We're not in Mill Valley where my school is. That's the wealthiest, uh, the wealthiest county in America. I mean, we are, we are in not a good area. It's like, okay, this is bad, right? And I felt immediately unguarded. I mean, I'm scared. Like, like somebody's just going to take this bag and, and they're going to beat me up for it and it's no good. And so we, we figure out how to get on the subway system uh, on BART. Like, we're, I mean, we're looking at maps and, you know, it's not like, I mean, the internet was around, but it's not like just Google it, you know? Like we didn't live, it wasn't the just Google it world that we live in now. And, and so we, we're going and we're, we're trying to figure out how to get on their subway. And all of a sudden, this guy, he is staring, I mean, he notices us. I don't know why he notices us. He doesn't look like a nice man. He's not a guy that I wanted to walk up and have a conversation with. 
And I'm like, and I'm, by the way, I should just admit, since I'm all about admitting things when I preach now and I seem like a horrible person, I'm in business mode with Bryn. She's not even my wife yet. And I'm like, you will walk right next to me and you will act like you don't know anybody and you will not smile at any person that passes. Like I'm in that, you know, that mode that you get into when you're trying to survive. And this guy is staring at us. And I realize like, I'm about to pull out all this cash that I just kind of have in here now to like pay and I don't want him to know I have cash and so I pretend and I go around and we walk around and he follows us. This guy follows us and, and when we got back into the open air, uh, he, he went another direction and we came back in and got on a subway. Uh, to end that story in a very bad way too, uh, we got a taxi finally, which I should have done originally. Uh, if you're ever thinking about marrying a girl and it's her birthday and things are bad, just get a taxi. Uh, but I'm watching the price on the taxi go up and up and up and I got to pay the guy to go across the Golden Gate Bridge. And, you know, like $400 is, is my money, like in the world, you know, it's in that pocket. And I'm watching the little ticker. And that's the first time and only time I've ever taken a cab. And I'm thinking, this is bad. It's going up fast, right? Like if he slows down, does it go up slower? How does this work? And it's just rolling numbers. And so we get to the bottom of the hill where my seminary is, which is a when I say hill, I mean like a hill, right? And I, I can't take the price going up anymore. And I tell the guy to drop us off at McDonald's. And so Bryn has McDonald's instead of crab. And then we're walking up this hill. And that's the moment I, I like, you know, we made it through that moment. And so we got married because going up this hill, she's crying and I'm, it's uh, it bad. Anyways, but, but I, I tell that story. Uh, we made it. Yeah, we're still here. Uh, but I tell that story because again, being unguarded, uh, it, it, it's scary, and, and it puts you, it, when you feel that vulnerability, right, like you're not safe, like you don't know what to do, it, it, it causes anxiety, it causes stress, it's difficult to deal with, and, and here's what I think, and here's why I tell those stories. I think that a lot of us live our lives vulnerable in that same way, but when it comes to the things that are inside of us. I mean, in America, we're so good. I mean, in, this, in our neighborhood here that we have church in, I mean, we're so good at putting up barriers, right? Like everybody in Villebois has a ring doorbell, right? Because they don't want to have to even go to the door. And, and I mean, we have security systems and fences and garage doors so that we don't have to ever, you know, look at our neighbor in the face that just goes up and we drive in and we shut it. And, and we, we are really good at keeping the physical world out now, right? Uh, but I'm convinced that so many of us are unprotected when it comes to the things of the soul, when it comes to the things of the heart and the mind. And you, I don't know if you've, if you've ever thought like, man, I'm so unguarded in here. But you feel kind of the aftermath and the effects of being unguarded. I mean, whenever something happens around you, think about this. It, it can, uh, so many people are living like this. Whatever happens around us totally alters what happens on, on the inside of us, right? It seems like more and more people are, are struggling with depression and anxiety uh, issues and disorders. And, and man, I'm sure that the reasons for that are just so varied. But I would say it's because people are unguarded in the internal things. And, and as our world becomes filled with conflict and disunity the unguarded inside becomes affected by what happens on the outside I mean I think a lot of people what what goes on in their minds their hearts their souls what happens inside of them is completely dependent on the situation outside of them 
Like for many in our country, who wins the next election is going to determine what happens on the inside. Uh, for a lot of people, what people say to you or how they treat you completely determines what happens on, on the inside of you. And it's because you're unguarded. And in the passage we're going to look at today, and I love this because it shouldn't be that way for Christians. If you're a Christian, it shouldn't be this way. What happens on the outside should not affect what is happening on the inside because we should be guarded. And in this passage we're going to look at today, we see Paul describe for us a promise A promise that God has made to guard our hearts and our minds. You maybe know the passage. But the promise is contingent upon something that we've been talking about over the last several weeks, and that is prayer. And so this morning, what we're going to see is that prayer is, is foundational, it's important, it's required for us to be guarded in our hearts and our minds on the inside. It's requirement. And that makes it a really big deal. Here's, uh, here's something that, that we need to see before we, before we look into this. At the end of a lot of Paul's letters, he writes these letters. If you don't know the Bible very well, he, li- he writes these letters that we call the New Testament. And he writes them to churches almost always. And at the end of these letters to these churches, oftentimes he has kind of these quick hitting statements that don't really go together they don't seem to go together but it's like he needs to get a few more things off his chest and so it just like spout off right quickly a bunch of stuff and this passage kind of feels like that in in Paul the passage that we're going to look at today but I think that there is a connection and a really important connection that we'll see. And so when we look at this today, if you read this in your Bibles later on, you look back, you should just see that there is a connecting theme here that Paul wants us to see. And let me, let me tell you what happens just before Philippians 4.4. 4. Paul has just made a statement to two individuals and he has said, hey, I want you guys to be of the same mind in the Lord. I want there to be unity between you two. Apparently there was some conflict between these people in the church. Paul is concerned that there be unity within these individuals, that their relationship becomes good. And there's a reason in the book of Philippians that he's so concerned with this. It's not like Paul just specifically likes these two people. Like, I mean, he, I, I'm sure he did and he cared about their souls. But for him, the issue is much bigger than we're friends or we're not friends. We get along or we don't get along. For Paul, in the book of Philippians, there's this incredible theme. And it's this, that, that the health and the unity of the church determines its ability to be a witness in the world. In the book of Philippians, Paul's made clear that when the church is unified, the world around us can look at us and then say, yeah, maybe I will accept Jesus. Maybe I will believe that gospel story to be true. But when we're not unified, when Christians aren't unified, then the world around goes, why would I accept your, your whole Jesus thing when you don't even seem to like each other very much? Now, that might just sound really pragmatic and we can be all theological like, well, they should just accept it as true or not true. You know, it's about Jesus and not his people. But, but isn't that the same excuse that so many people give today? I mean, church fighting and the way Christians treat each other is a determining factor for many people when it comes to whether or not they're going to accept Jesus as their savior or not. And so for Paul, unity in the church is a big deal. But this other thing is a really big deal 
to Paul because what he sees and what he makes clear is that unity only happens between people if those individuals are developing on the inside, if they're, they're growing in their relationship with Christ. If there is, as we'll see in a second, peace on the inside for people, then that peace will transfer to the outside. And so Paul turns his attention here at the end of his book to the idea of internal peace because not just in a vacuum, not just on its own, because he's looking around and he's going, if, if you don't have peace, then there won't be peace. And if there's not peace in the church, then other people won't accept the peace of God through Jesus. And here's what he says in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. If you know about Philippians at all, this book, that, that, this letter that Paul's writing to this church in Philippi, you know it's, it's really a, a book of joy. Paul's writing it for prison, famously writing it from prison. And yet in the midst of it, the number one thing he seems to want to talk about is joy. And, and Paul demonstrates, but also calls us to be joyful despite the circumstances around us. Now, it's really key here. He says to rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord is essential. It's easy to skip over, but it's essential. We can't rejoice in everything. We can't celebrate everything on all occasions, right? I mean, there's tragedy all around us, and it would be uh, disingenuous of us and dishonest of us at certain times to to try to rejoice in everything that we experience that's not the point we'll see that we should be thankful but but to celebrate to be excited about to be joyful about everything doesn't make any sense but despite the circumstances around us we can always rejoice in the Lord we can always celebrate what God has done in us we can always find and be joyful inside because of what Jesus has done not because of what we are experiencing my grandma used to say this thing to me that I now say to my kids. It's been a very important thing. And it, it was, I don't think I quite got it as a kid. I didn't know why it was a big deal for her to tell me this thing, but now I kind of get it. She would always say to me, like, everybody will let you down but God. Uh, you need to know, and I don't know, this is, she's not this, you know, defeatist in her attitude normally, but you need to know that everybody will let you down, but God will never let you down. And now, I, don't, I haven't asked her about this. I didn't tell her I was going to put this into my sermon. But uh, now I think it's because, like, as, as an adult, you just realize, you know, how difficult parenting is and grandparenting, and you have no clue what you're doing. And so you're looking at them like, hey, hey, Hazel, hey, Hudson, this is me. I'm going to mess a bunch of stuff up here, but just know God's not going to mess stuff up in your life. It's almost like I just think my grandma was releasing stress. Like, hey, you just need to know, like at some point I'm going to let you down. And that's uh, me with my kids. Like, hey, your daddy messes up, your mommy messes up, but, but God's not going to mess up for you. And, and, and every, there's nothing, there is nothing in a similar vein, there is nothing in the world that we can always rejoice in except for God and the work that God has done in our lives. I mean, it, it, you know, you think about the Super Bowl today, right? And these guys are so excited to be in the Super Bowl. And what an honor and a privilege to play in such an important sporting event. But somebody today is going to lose and they're going to cry afterwards, right? Because you can't always rejoice in a sport or the outcome of a sport. You can't always rejoice in, in the talent that you have. You can't always rejoice in your job. You can't always rejoice in your family. But you can always rejoice in the Lord. And Paul calls us to do just that. 
He says it twice. I would like to point that out too. Uh, it, and I think it's because people are going like, to be like, well, that's impossible. I can't always rejoice because of all this stuff going on around. And, and I, I don't, he didn't do this because it's a letter, but I just picture Paul sticking his fingers in his ears. I don't know why I pictured that all week. And just being like, no, nah, I'm saying it again. Rejoice. You know, have you ever been there? Like, I can't hear you. Rejoice. It's like it's so important to him. He knows the excuses will come. He knows that people are going to say, well, but all this stuff, but all this stuff. And he's like, no, just rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Now, this might be connected to rejoicing. Some commentators think it is, and I, I find that interesting uh, because I, I, I think, for me anyway, personally, and I think this is true of a lot of people, it's really hard to always rejoice in the Lord if we're always focused on us. But when we turn our attention to other people and we're serving and we're helping, it's just easier to be a poor person of joy. Uh, I find especially through Instagram, that the more people focus, the more people talk about self-care, and uh, that's a buzz term now if you're on Instagram, like self-care and, and, and focusing on me, the less joyful they actually seem as, as people. I know it's from a distance and I'm, I'm making judgment calls from social media, so forgive me, but, but it seems like the more people focus on themselves, the less joyful they become. And the people that I know that, that, are, that are pouring out and into others oftentimes seem to be the most joyful people I know. Now, that's not 100% of the time, and we have you know, things that happen in our brains and all that, but oftentimes that, is, that seems to be the case. And, and so a lot of people are like, well, well, when Paul says here, let your gentleness be evidence at all, he's actually talking about being not gentle in like the passive way, but like, like being kind-hearted towards others and, and serving others, another theme in the book of Philippians. And, and he's saying that, look, if you're going to rejoice in the Lord always, then you need to be a person that, that thinks about what you're doing for others and how you're interacting with others and what you're doing, you know, for the good of others. In fact, the idea here when, when gentleness is said is similar to uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 5, which says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Either way, whether it's connected to the joy part or not, it, it is part of, of what Paul is saying is important for our hearts and minds being protected, being taken care of. We need to be people, first, that rejoice in the Lord always, but second, we need to be people that are looking out for the interest of others. And that man, I don't know that there's any more countercultural thing than that in the New Testament, but it is a common refrain. We should be putting the good of others above and, and beyond our own good. It's just an important thing to do. Uh, if you spend all your day doing things for yourself, then that needs to change because you should be serving other people. I'm thankful for many at our church who do that so well. Now, now he says, after he says, he says, because God is near, God, and God's nearness reminds us of two things, two really important things. First, that Jesus is coming back soon. And second, that Jesus is always with us. Jesus says that right before he ascends back into heaven. He says, I'll be with you always, even in the end of the age. 
Now, <laughs> maybe it's like a guilty conscience, I don't know. But, but I almost like can read that as a threat. Like when you first read that, like, hey, be gentle towards others because the Lord is near. It's like your dad's coming home, you know, like, and so, oh, okay. But, but both are meant as, as encouragement. Uh, be gentle towards others because, because Jesus is coming back soon and be gentle towards others because Jesus is with you always. And in some ways, it's the response to the argument we might have. If I am focused on the good of others, then what about me? Who is taking care of me? What's going to happen to me? And Paul says, well, you don't have to worry about that because God is near to you. He's with you now, and soon he will be coming back to take you to be with him forever. And so you focusing on you becomes less important when you remember that, that God is near to us. He is with us and the next thing he says this is, this is really what i want to focus on in philippians 4 6 this is this is the part about prayer but but i would say that now remember all of this in some ways seems to be connected to to our insides and what is happening inside of us in order that in order that there might be unity within the church that then spills out into the world and causes people to embrace jesus as their savior so if you're a christian there is like no greater setup right than that for what he says next do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God Oof, that's tough that anxiety thing right like I mean we are we are a church that is stressed out all the time I don't know if every church is that way but I, and that's because I know you that I'm saying that I'm not just saying that arbitrarily like you people worry I worry we worry we're just all kinds of worried around here and and here comes Paul you know like hey unity in the church spills out into the world so that people accept Jesus and it's kind of dependent on you giving up anxiety oh, great, like, well, we should just quit now, like, let's just shut it down and be done, you know, I mean, this is, this is, this is a big call, and by the way, it's not just about, like, avoiding anxiety, it's more like a command to stop, and so, uh, it's, it's like, you need to stop stressing out, stop being worried, stop being anxious about anything, by the way, that's worse, almost, right, because it's like, well, just a few things, you know, I could cut it down, and only bite my fingernails about this, this, and this. But like, don't be anxious about anything. <laughs> Before you go like, oh, easy in Bible times. I feel like that's an excuse people make. I don't know if you really do. <laughs> but uh, like, well, that's easy for you to say, Paul. But the Philippians had tons to be anxious about. In fact, a big, a big point, a big theme in this book is all the things that they could be stressed about. I mean, Paul's in prison. They're concerned about that. They're concerned that this man who's so important to the Christian church and to them is in prison. Uh, they, they have internal strife between members of their church and they're trying to figure out how to deal with that. And then there's opposition from non-Christians. I mean, they're struggling with the world around them and the people around them and, and how they're being treated because they've chosen to follow Jesus. And so it's not like this is like, you know, some 
It's not like in a vacuum. It's not like, it's not like he doesn't have anything in mind. I mean, he's looking at these people that he knows, and he knows what they're dealing with, and he knows their struggles, and he says, don't be anxious. And I think he'd do the same thing to you. Like, I know what you're doing with your kids, and I know, you know, that struggle in your marriage, and I, I know, you know, what you're going through with your parents, and I know... I, I know what's happening at work, and I know how that person is treating you, and I know all that. Don't be anxious. <laughs> Don't be anxious. Now, that's a good aim, right? It's a good thing to aim for. It's something, we, I mean, we have to aim for that. Uh, but, what, but what makes this important, I think, is, is not that he says, Don't be anxious. It's that he says, don't be anxious, and then he doesn't follow that up with, just try really hard not to be anxious. Just really give, you know, work harder. I don't know, read, read another book. Like, it's not that. I mean, what he follows it up with is really the gold, the value, the important thing here. Instead of being anxious, it's like a trade-off, right? Instead of being anxious, in every situation, prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests your requests to God. He uses three words for prayer. Why does he do that? Not to explain different styles of prayer, different ways to pray. If you've been around for this series so far, then then it's become abundantly clear that that Paul is less focused on how to pray and more focused on that we do it, right? And here we see that again because he seems to use these three different words for pray to basically say pray, pray, pray. No matter what you are facing, no matter what type of prayer it needs to be, you pray and you pray and you pray, you pray. You replace your anxiety with prayer about everything that you would want to be anxious about. Uh, if, I'd, if Paul's trying to point out anything about this, it's, it's maybe the last one, like that we just present our requests. And that's, that's part of the problem, right? Like we're stressed about all these things and, and we need help. We need so much help. And, and then Paul's like, hey, well, just bring them to God. I mean, just pray, pray, pray. Deliver those requests and those petitions and, and just put them at the feet, at the feet of, of Jesus, of God. He says in every situation, which is so similar to what we saw last week and, and very similar to what we'll see in a couple weeks, that Paul is like all about praying about everything, I mean, man, I, I think, and this is so hard, but if Paul wanted you to devote your life to one thing because you love Jesus, I think it might be prayer. I mean, like, we devote our lives to Jesus, right? That's who we're devoted to. We're devoted to God and experiencing and expressing his glory. But if there's, like, one thing we do because of that, it seems like Paul would say, like, just make prayer essential to every part of that. Just pray, 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 pray. And pray some more. I mean, we, this is what's so clear in this series. We should be praying about anything and everything. We should be doing it as much as, as our schedules allow. Like, that's what Paul is getting at. In every situation, we should pray. And you think, well, I don't have time for that. Well, do as best as you can. I mean, like, just, just spend all the time you can praying about that thing. I would point out that we don't pray to make God aware of our needs, and I think that makes this passage better in some ways. In fact, Jesus, when he's talking about worry, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, uh, Matthew 6, in verses 31 and 32, he says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So it's not like we're like, Hey, God, by the way, let me get your attention here. It's not like you've, 
you haven't seen what's going on. Hey, can you, hey, like the, my kid's being a jerk and, and my spouse is not acting right and I don't have the money. I need. It's not like that. It's more like 1 Peter 5, 7, which says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I love that imagery. I love putting these two things together. Don't be anxious. Well, I got to be anxious because there's all these things that I have to deal with. No, no, here's what you do. You just cast them out. Uh, I picture like fishing. I don't know if that's the, the etymology here, but like you're just throwing it, right? You're just getting it out there. And what you're, what you're casting into is not an abyss. You're casting it to, towards the God of heaven who can actually do something about the things you're worried about when you, you know, most of the time probably can't do anything about them. I mean, what Paul says is not, stop it, you know, stop being stressed out, because that's hard, like, well, that does no good for me. It's like, trade your anxiety, trade your anxiety, or that's not even a trade, give away your anxiety to God. I want to pause here, because we're going to, he adds to that, and he gives us something specific about these prayers that's really important, but I know we say, like, I pray. I get that. And I just want to be really pastoral right now because I think we just kind of say, like, yeah, I pray. But we're nowhere near what Paul is talking about in this passage of Scripture. And, and, I, and I can picture in my head people going, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. I, I was stressed about not having enough money, and I said, dear God, help me have enough money. And, and I'm still stressed. I, I don't, that's not the picture that's being painted as we go through this series the picture is like i'm stressed with money i don't know how i'm paying my bills this month and and so i devoted all of my free time to getting on my knees and praying to god about every part of that stress god i have too many bills and and i ran up that credit card debt and i'm sorry about that and i and i don't have enough money coming in from work to meet that demand and, and i'm trying to help these people at the same time and god i think you want me to give money to church but that doesn't really make sense given my financial situation i mean what if you literally just just threw all of your anxiety into God, onto God through prayer. How different would it be than God help me in this financial struggle? Because I think it's really easy to go, I tried it and it didn't work. It's just, I, I, I prayed, you know, last week about that and it just didn't do any good for me. But what is hard but far more valuable is to say, I will pray as much as I can, as deep as I can, as long as I can about this, these things, all of these things that bring such stress and anxiety into my life. I think that's vastly different. I, I kind of just dropped this in last week. It was like a, just, I don't know, it was a jerky thing to do in my sermon, but, but like the amount of TV... That, that you and I watch, I do pretty good, actually, if I could say so. I, we don't watch that much TV in our house, but, but, but even me, like the amount of, t- I, I could give up those moments, and I don't know what the average is in America, but man, like, just, what if you took all that TV time and you just spent that time casting your anxiety onto the Lord? Then maybe you could follow that command to not be anxious anymore. All of the entertainment stuff you love doing, all that. I mean, even, even some of the good stuff, what if you just cut it in half, you know? I, I don't know why this is popping in my head because it's so far from me. But like your arts and your crafts or your video games or your, your, your watching sports or, 
or playing sports or I mean like what if just what if you just cut it down like some those things are great but what if you just cut it down and devoted that time to casting your anxiety on the Lord I think it would change you profoundly and it would lower your stress profoundly so many of us want <laughs> we want to worry less but what we do with our time just brings more stress and I think Paul would say it shouldn't be that way. And then he adds this cool thing that I love. He says it should be done with thanksgiving. It should be done with thanksgiving. Every time you bring your anxiety to the Lord, it should be done with thanksgiving. We should be thanking God. We should be thanking God for the things he's done in our lives, for the things that he is doing. For that same connection, read. I'm not going to read this to you, but read Colossians three fifteen through 17. Peter T. O'Brien who, who wrote a magnificent commentary on, on this book, says the regular offering of thanks to God is almost synonymous with being a Christian. That's a big statement. He's a smart guy. <laughs> and he's not t- pulling that out any the thin air. He's looking at the Bible and saying, when, when, when I read the New Testament, thanks to God is almost synonymous with just being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 2 uses the word ungrateful when describing people who reject Christ in the end days. Ungrateful. It doesn't say ungrateful to God. It's just like part of the nature of not being a Christian is, is being ungrateful. And, and man, that means in some ways that part of the nature of being a Christian should be a grateful heart and a grateful attitude. Thanksgiving and prayer go together. And it's something that should be done in all circumstances. This story, you know who Corey Tinboom is? Holocaust survivor. This story that she tells in her famous book, The Hiding Place, has stuck out with me for years. And so just preaching on this passage, it just immediately came back to me. But uh, her sister and her were put in the barracks at this concentration camp. And, and, uh, and she says to her sister, I, I'm, how can we live here? You know, like this, we can never... We're never going to survive this. We're never going to, you know, find any joy or hope or comfort here. This is awful. I mean, it's, it's terrible. Look at all the fleas. That's one of the things she says. And her sister opens the Bible, actually to 1 Thessalonians, where it says something very similar and says, look, it says we should be thankful in all circumstances. And, and so she starts to thank, she starts to thank her sister or, or thank God for things in front of her sister and and she nearing the end, and she says, "God, thank you for these fleas." And and Corey Tinboom says, "You know, she writes about it later. I was fed up. Like, come on, you're being an idiot. We can't, we can't thank God for the fleas. Like, that's stupid." Her sister gets really sick, and and uh, to the point where she can't leave the barracks anymore, and she she stays in the barracks. She doesn't have to go out and work because the Nazis recognized she was too sick, and. Uh, and and one day, uh, Corey Timboom comes in from working, and and her sister's you know looks like she's about to gloat. She has that look on her face that says, "I'm right and you're wrong." And 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 she says, "Hey, do you know why the guards let us have so much freedom in the barracks, and they never come in here to bother us?" And and Corey Timboom says, "No, I why?" She says, "Because they won't come in because there's so many fleas." 
And so her sister enjoyed this freedom that she never would have had without these fleas. And I think it's a great illustration of, of how we can be thankful or, or just choose to be thankful in every situation, even if we don't know how God is working it for our good. And remember from several weeks back in the book of Romans, it says that we pray. And when we don't know what to pray, we trust the Holy Spirit to lead our prayers. And right after it, it says that God is working all things for our good. And if we truly believe that God is working all things for our good, then we should be able to say thank you about everything that we face. Thank you, God, that I get to go through this. Thank you for the work that you're going to do despite this awful circumstance. Whatever it sounds like, we should be thankful as we cast our anxiety onto the Lord. This is something I've done well, and, and the re- only reason I know I've done this well, because I don't analyze my, my prayer life, you know, that much, but, but, but your kids are echo chambers, right? And, 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 and my daughter, when she prays, she hardly ever asks for anything, and I, and I love hearing it. It's like, thank you for them, and thank you for church, and thank you that, you know, I got to go to basketball today, and it's just, a, it's just her just saying thank you to God. And man, I, I, I love that because I think it's going to help her be less anxious, but it's also just right. So much of our prayers are just God do this, God do that, God do that. But, but as we cast our anxiety on him, we have to be, we have to be people who are, are thankful. Uh, another commentary, the message of Philippians says, the anecdote to anxiety and the prelude to the enjoyment of peace are to be found in the lined exercise of prayer and thanksgiving. That which causes anxiety is brought to the one who is totally competent and in whose hands the matter may be left. And now watch what happens in verse 7. I love this. There's this promise that's all tied to what he said. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If you'll do your best to rejoice always, and you'll be gentle towards others, and probably most specifically and most importantly, if you will cast your anxieties on the Lord through prayer while offering thanksgiving, then your insides are no longer vulnerable because the peace of God will protect your hearts and your minds. This word peace is, is an incredible word in the Bible. When we hear peace, we, we often think of just a nice feeling, it's peaceful, right? Like I'm sitting on a beach, it's peaceful. Uh, but peace is such a big deal in the New Testament that we just, we have to pay attention to it. They pull it from this Old Testament word, shalom, which means closer to wholeness than it does just mean, you know, feeling good or whatever. But it's used as something that Jesus brings into our lives through the death and resurrection in the New Testament. The word is arene, it means peace, rest, in contrast with strife and denoting the absence or end of strife. It denotes a state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being. But it's used for the gospel story. It's used in regards to what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus came from heaven to earth, died on a cross for our sins and rose again so that we might have peace with God. That's how this word is used first and foremost in the New Testament. We might have an absence of strife with God. We used to be enemies, but now we can be friends and children of God. We can have peace with him. 
And as an extension of that, it's used as a word that bubbles over out of us and into our relationships with others. Because the peace we have with God, we can now have peace with others, even if they shouldn't be people that we are connected to. For Paul, that's Jew and Gentile. It's like oil and water, but now oil and water can be brought together and at peace in Jesus. We can have peace in here because of what Jesus has done because we know that we're forgiven for our sins, that we no longer have to fear death, that we no longer have to fear the wrath of God. We have peace. One of the things I love about peace in the New Testament is that it's so transcendent. It's, it's like there can be peace between Republican and Democrat, between black and white, between, uh, between people that should just never get along. There can be peace. And here, here, Paul is using it, I mean, the peace of God, this peace can guard your hearts and your minds. That's everything that's inside of you. It's all the things you think and the things you feel and the things you will. That's, that's what these two terms combine to mean. The stuff that happens that nobody else can see, it will be guarded by that peace that is so beautiful in God. It will be guarded by it if you will cast your anxiety on the Lord. Right now, your insights, if you're not doing that, this, your will and your emotions and your thoughts, they're unguarded if you're not casting your anxiety on God with thanksgiving. But if you'll do it, then peace will, will become the wall, the protection, the fence around your soul. That's a big deal. I mean, because because... So many things are coming at us and making us just, just hurting us. They hurt us. They cause us to struggle and they raise up our anxiety and we have panic attacks and we're scared and we worry. And if you want all that to be guarded, then you have to, you have to cast your anxiety on God with thanksgiving. The Philippians would have understood this better than anybody. They literally had a garrison, a, a group of soldiers who protected their city and so it would have been right in front of them. What does he mean by this word guarding, which is a military term? I mean, no, they would have been like, this means that the peace of God acts as a group of soldiers for my mind and my heart, for my feelings, for my thinking, for my willing, for, for everything that, that kind of makes me really me. Peter T. O'Brien says, Paul pictures God's peace as a garrison keeping guard over the Philippians and as an extension, our hearts and our minds, protecting them from all assaults. And the message of Philippians again says, if the castle can be held, progress in sanctification and renewal goes forward. If it can be captured, then backsliding and spiritual decadence begin. And remember why progress is so important. Your spiritual progress matters because it matters to our church and, and it matters to our church because it matters to the world. And so Paul says, cast your anxiety on God with thanksgiving. I, I, I mean, we're so, cons I mean, like, aren't we, uh, like, 
just like we're so scared like we don't want anybody to take what we have you know on the on the inside like we're just so worried like we're just holding tight like close up and don't let anybody see we're like Elsa I don't know why that popped in my head because I listen to soundtrack a hundred times a day but like uh but like we're so guarded inside like I'm not gonna let you see who I am I'm not gonna let you get in here I'm not gonna let you know me because then you might you might take something from me I, I feel unprotected or, or we're running around with our golf clubs like nobody's getting close to this guy because somewhere inside of us we know how unguarded we are but what if what if we could just know that we are guarded how different would our lives be how secure would we feel how unaffected would we be when somebody says i don't like you i mean just think about that statement right now Somebody told you today that they didn't like you, how much that could hurt you, that that could tear at you, that that could pull away your joy, that that could, that could just ruin your day. And the promise is here. The promise here is if you will become a person who casts all your anxiety on the Lord with thanksgiving, then, then protection is gonna come and somebody can walk up to you and say, I don't like you or you're ugly or you're not good enough. And you'll still have the peace of God. What a promise. But it's depending on you being a person of prayer. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. If you struggle with anxiety, you struggle to find peace, you need to read what follows in Philippians 4, 8, and 9 because it's important too, but I want to end with this today. If this, if you feel unguarded, in your mind, in your heart, if your emotions and your thinking just seem to be driven by everything that happens around you, how people treat you, what you see on the news, if that's the case for you, then then man, pray, pray, pray. Cast all of your anxiety on him. Put the TV, turn the TV off, put your hobby away, and just spend time in prayer because it's the only way that you can know that your soul will be protected and, and you'll have the peace that you want. If you want your hearts and your minds to be guarded, if you want peace like a river, then pray. Let me pray that you'll do that. Lord Jesus, I, I, know, I mean, we are a church of worry, and maybe it's because we're not a, a strong enough church of prayer, God. And, and I know we've taken big steps forward in prayer and how much we pray and, but, but God, I don't know individuals' hearts. I don't know where we're at. But I pray that all the more, whether, whether I'm looking at people who pray an hour a day or a minute a day, I pray that you would cause them to pray more, but not just arbitrarily kind of sitting down and trying to pray for things, but I pray that, that we, God, uh, as a church, people listening online, God, that we would be a people who spend as much time in prayer doing our best to cast our anxieties, our worries, our fears upon you, God, onto you. And then I pray that we would trust, God, what you promised in Romans, that you would, that you would work everything for our good. And then, and then, God, just give us your peace. We need your peace. There's so much to be stressed about. There's so many things that can cause turmoil in our souls. We need your peace, God. And I pray that you would be faithful to this promise. I trust that you would be faithful to this promise. Lord, make us a people of prayer. 
for every reason that we've seen in this series, but God, make us a people of prayer so that we, God, might have your peace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.